My friends, we've made it. The Christmas journey has come to an end. All of the hype, all of the build-up, all the anticipation, all the preparations, the decorating, the baking, the shopping. Oh, the shopping. We made it through all of that, and here we are, and we're sitting in the aftermath, standing in the gap between the holiday of holidays and the beginning of a new year. And I don't know about you, but for me, this is, it's kind of an unsettling time of the year. After all we've been through, I'm beat. I'm tired. It's been good, but now I'm good and tired. There have been a lot of challenges this past year, a lot of overcoming of challenges this past year, a lot of obstacles, and a lot of triumphs, but, but here we are in this brief moment, and we kind of just let out a sigh. You can do that right now. You can just breathe a sigh of relief. It's, it's that in-between time, that, that moment. And at the same time, we have to take a deep breath, don't we? Because the new year is sure to be full of challenges. The last journey, it just came to an abrupt end. It's coming in just a day or two. But another, another journey sits only days away. How do you prepare for that? How do you get ready for the challenges that are going to come? How should we step in to 2020? There's a single 11-word verse that I want to challenge us to keep on the forefront of our minds as we move into 2020. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans. And we're going to zero in on Romans 12 12, but let's turn to chapter 12 and let's just read verses 1 through 13 and we'll kind of hit 12 on our way to the end there. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. If you would stand in honor and respect for and admiration for and love for God's word, please do so. The Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members, members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 
Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Did you catch it? Verse 12. This is a verse that I've been clinging on to, holding fast to. And I think it's easy to see why. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. The first thing I want us to recognize and perhaps to actually validate the concerns of the realists in the room is that this year, next year, it's going to be full of its share of storms. Have you ever sat out on a trip and you thought you had planned well? You thought you examined all the details. You had the, the, the map all figured out on your phone, or maybe you're using the Thomas guide still. And you got it all figured out. You got the car packed. You, the oil's been checked. The tank's full of gas. The tires are full of air. Hopes are high for the journey. And yet somehow, somehow on that journey, trouble just finds its way to you. I remember one, one road trip, I was actually reminded of this just the other day when I was with my family. There's one horrible road trip where we went up north in our 15-passenger van that was bought at auction, and we're driving up, and we made it almost all the way to the cabin, way up north somewhere, I don't know where, Sequoia or something like that. And we make it up there, and then all of a sudden the van just quits. And it, and it, it doesn't like pitter-patter out. It just stops. It's just dead. And we're kind of rolling and come to a stop on the side of the road. I can't remember how many of us there were at the time, probably at least six or seven kids in the van. And, uh, and somehow we ended up getting to a mechanic and we waited there for hours, hours and hours and hours as they try to figure out what was wrong with this van, this big white behemoth Dodge van. And finally, I think it was the next day, they figured out that one little wire had come loose and touched the side of the engine and shorted everything out. One wire! And they taped it to the side, and then everything was fine. Trouble just has a way of finding us, finding us, doesn't it? And we don't want to be naive as we step into 2020 thinking that somehow we're going to make it through without any trouble. It's just there. It's part of life. That's what Job says in chapter 5, verse 7. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Man who is born of a woman is a few, is few of days and full of trouble. Trouble's just a part of the game. Everyone figures that out at some point, right? Since that first bad decision that our great, 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 and we could add a bunch more greats in there, our grandparents that made it back in Genesis 3. Struggle, hardship, misfortune, tragedy, whatever you want to call it, it's become, it's become that unwelcome guest that just won't leave. That's why we have pithy little platitudes like Murphy's Law, right? Trouble, it finds its way to us in almost every situation. Everyone's got trouble. But the Bible tells us 
if you are a follower of Christ, you've got trouble on a whole new level. On a whole new level. Is that what you signed up for? Jesus told his disciples, his followers, he said, in this world, in this world, you will have tribulation. The context of this verse is that these disciples were, were somewhat in a similar place as to where we're at right now. They were standing in the gap. They were with Jesus in that moment, but he was telling them that he was going to be leaving very soon. He was going to his Father in heaven, and they weren't going to see him any longer. That would have been a really troubling thought. Can you imagine? <laughs> What do you mean, Jesus? You're leaving? Are you serious? After you've gathered us all together, after we've been following you for about three years, you're, you're going to leave? These last few years we've spent with you have been, they've been incredible. We've seen you do amazing things. We've watched as you put those stuck-up, self-important people in their place. We watched as you, you, you were caring for the down and out, healing the sick. It was incredible. We've heard you teach things that literally turn the way the world works upside down. It's amazing. And what's more, we've gone along. We've followed you. We dropped those nets. Our boats, they're long gone. Someone else grabbed them. They're, they're gone. We left everything. We've taken on new life, new meaning, new purpose for our lives because of you. And now you say you're leaving us? How on earth do you expect us to keep, keep going after you've gone? You caused quite a stir here. And somehow, each time, the, the trouble started bubbling up. Well, you took care of it in some way. But that's you. You're able to do that. We just sit back and we watch as you do these incredible things. As you bail us out. As people, thousands of people are starving. And you somehow turn a few loaves and fish into, to feed the multitudes. This is incredible. You've been there. You've worked things out. You've provided for our need. You've calmed the storms. How are we going to make it without you? That's a legitimate concern. In Jesus' ministry, it wasn't free from trouble. Those who followed him had seen their share of opposition. And if they were to walk in his footsteps to carry the, the torch, the mission that he left them, well, there was a good chance that they were going to have their share of trouble as well. In fact, Jesus told them in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Boy, that's comforting, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Not what I signed up for. But you see, that's the nature of living in a world that's turned its back on God. If you've now realigned yourself with God, well then, that world 
that hates God is now automatically going to hate you. Paul told us that you yourselves were enemies of God at one point, remember Romans 5.10? But that changed when you came to trust in Jesus. Romans 5.10, for if well we were enemies, for if well we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Our our relationship with God, it's been restored through Christ. He's brought us back to him, and it gives us great joy. And yet this friendship with God that we now experience, well, that makes us the enemies of those who hate him. It's basic math. It's common sense. So we shouldn't be surprised by the resistance that we face, the trouble that we face. That's what 1 John 3.13 tells us. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Yet I think the reality is so, so very often we do find ourselves surprised. Surprised when we're facing opposition. Surprised when people are now, that we thought were friends, are now pointing their fingers at us and saying, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You go to that church? I don't think so. You believe that? No, I don't think so. Friends off. And I think that we're surprised because we've experienced such a long season of ease and prosperity here in the U.S., we have. We've lived in a place where Christian values, they, they, they permeated the culture, underlying so much of the thinking, so much of the behavior of our society for so many years were the teachings of the Bible, whether people knew it or not. Some of our courthouses unashamedly had up on display the Ten Commandments, in God we trust, printed on our money. One nation under God, part of our country's pledge. We've lived through a time where being a Christian was a relatively easy thing to do because the rest of the the society, it it thought and behaved in, in a similar way. But cultural thinking and behavior has changed. And along with it has, is our ability to hold fast to our Christian convictions and blend in with the crowd. More and more we're being faced with the reality that we're at a fork in the road. Either be faithful to God and his word and stick out as some type of perplexing oddity, possibly be looked at even as a threat, or loosen your grip. Adjust your interpretation of the Bible to keep up with the cultural current. Former pastor Josh Harris, he wrote a popular book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye years ago. He so rightly concluded in an interview with Sojourners Magazine not too long ago, he says this, in in a way, it's almost easier for me to contemplate throwing out all of Christianity than it is to keeping Christianity and adapting it in these different 
ways. See, just before leaving Christianity entirely, Josh Harris was rethinking all the sexual ethics of the Bible and traditional Christianity. And some people, of course, had been trying for so long, and people still are today, trying to adapt what the Bible says to current cultural thinking, views on sexuality. But Harris comes to the conclusion, and I think rightly so, and he honestly admits that what society believes and what the Bible teaches, those are just not compatible. Not compatible anymore. Dr. Albert Moeller wrote in an article about Josh Harris He wrote, there is no reconciliation possible between the biblical worldview and the modern secular worldview. He understands, that is Josh Harris, understands there is no halfway house. And in that sense, it's intellectually honest of him to understand that theological liberalism, which seeks to maintain some claim upon Christianity while repudiating its biblical truth claims, is unsustainable. And Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. That's why he said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you also. It's because he knew that being honest and faithful to his word, that following him with your whole heart, that was going to put you in direct opposition to the world around you. It's true. In this world, in this year, 2020, If you and I are faithful to Christ, we're going to have trouble. We're going to have trouble anyways. It's going to come from all different sources. But the question for us this morning is, how do we prepare? Christ hasn't left us without hope. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. What does it mean to rejoice in hope? Jesus told his disciples that even though he was going to be leaving, a helper was being given to them, God's Holy Spirit. He was going to be coming to them. He would convict the world of sin. He would lead people to faith in Christ, but he'd also guide them in all truth. He'd lead them to glorify Christ. In other words, even though Christ would be leaving, there was hope. He didn't leave us alone. He wasn't abandoning Christians, his followers. No, no, no. He was going to continue to care for them. Jesus told his disciples that in this world they would have trouble. But after he said that, in fact, immediately after he said that, he said, but take heart. I've overcome the world. There's great hope there. Great hope that Christ came as a man and took upon himself all of our our suffering He took the root of human suffering upon himself as he carried our guilt of sin. When he went to the cross, he suffered and died for it. And that's where he put it to death. He completely defeated it as he rose from the grave. Those who trust him, who have been brought into this new relationship with him, they have ownership of a new hope. The hope that he purchased. Though one day be completely free from sin. Can you imagine? Completely free from evil. Completely free from illness, from suffering, and any other side effects of sin. Jesus Christ is our hope. 
and we cling to Him. And that's where our joy is found, isn't it? In the midst of all the stuff that we go through. That's where the joy is found. That's where we need to live. As we experience troubles of many kinds, that's where our focus needs to be. That's what Peter was doing in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Then he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's joy in that hope, isn't there? There's joy in that hope. It's joy invincible, because that hope is invincible. It's, it, it's definitive. Because of Jesus Christ, those who trust in him, they've been born to a living hope, Peter says. They have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, that's unfading. Yes, there are trials, but as they come, our joy is unshaken and our faith is proved to be the real deal. It's proved genuine, real saving faith. If I unwrapped a gift from one of you this Christmas and it turned out to be a gold brick, which is probably pretty unlikely. <laughs> but if I received that and I opened up this br brick, this gold brick, my first thought would be, this is probably some vacation Bible school prop, you know, that is, has some meaning and you want to share with me some type of lesson, I don't know. But then I start to wonder and I think, well, maybe it's really heavy. I need to get this thing tested. And as it was tested, it would it'd go through all sorts of different, I don't know what they do to gold to, to see if it's real, the real thing or not, but it would go through this testing. And if it passed all of those tests, I would know its worth, its value. That's what Peter says trials do for our faith. They put it to the test. And if our faith prevails through that time of trial, it's proven to be real. It's proven to be genuine. I like what Pastor John Piper wrote. For those who know and trust Jesus Christ, tribulation does not destroy joy. It drives the roots of joy down deep into hope. Isn't that good? It drives the roots of joy down deep into hope. He's saying that the troubles that come our way should cause us to press deeper into the arms of Jesus, who is our one and only hope. They should cause us to think more about him, to fall to our knees calling out to him, to trust him more. 
So rejoice when your faith is tested. Rejoice. It pushes you closer to Jesus, the one in whom your hope is found in the first place. Rejoice in hope, in the hope you've been given. And rejoice because your hope, your faith that continues to endure during those hard times, that's evidence that you actually have an eternal future reserved with your Savior. Your destination is paradise. How do you prepare for 2020? You rejoice in hope. Do it every day, throughout the day. Set an alarm. Get up early. Spend time reading, reminding yourself, rejoicing in the hope that Christ has secured for you. Be intentional about hanging out and spending time with others that share that same hope so that when you're down, they can point you to that hope. Commit yourself to being here with the body of Christ that gathers every Sunday morning so that you can be built up You come in here and you're frustrated and you're tired and you're heavy laden and the community of faith rejoices in the hope of Christ and all of a sudden you are lifted up with them. Rejoice in hope. And as we rejoice in hope, we're enabled to do something. Something that is very difficult to do. To be patient in tribulation. Rejoicing in hope enables us to be patient in those times of trouble. Yet one of the more beautiful Christmas songs, it's one of those really moving songs, I hear it and it just has meaning, is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I think it's so moving to me because it's a song of hope, a song of longing, a song that's looking forward to the coming of the Savior. It's looking forward to Emmanuel. It's looking forward to God finally being with us. O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. It's a song of the exiles. It's a song of those who are just longing for a Savior, longing for the promised Messiah. When is he coming? And in the midst of that longing, what does the song say? Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. In the waiting, there's joy. There's ability to wait and endure with patient joy because God who promised is faithful. Though it hasn't arrived yet, they could be sure that God was going to come through on his promise, a promise that we've been talking about the last several months in Genesis. This is a promise that goes way back. And they could patiently wait for it. Rejoice. He's faithful. He's going to bring about what he has promised. Now, you and I, we're on the other side of that. We're on the other side. He has come through. Jesus Christ has come. We've been given this incredible, rock-solid hope. And yet we have our own exile to endure, don't we? We sure do. We're waiting for another day. Waiting. For the day when Christ will return to take us home. Waiting for a day when at long last we'll be with our Savior in paradise and enjoying the full inheritance he has laid up for us. But because of that hope that we have, we can wait. 
patiently, expectantly. We wait, and we wait with joy, knowing that it's just a matter of time. He's going to come through. Our Savior will return. We patiently wait because Christ is our sure and certain hope. As you and I step into 2020, let's get our, in our minds right now that even as troubles inevitably come our way, we will patiently endure with joyful expectation. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Finally, be constant in prayer. Prayer is the ultimate way that we demonstrate our hope, isn't it? We demonstrate our trust. We demonstrate our reliance on God. We pray because of who God is. Because of who he is. As we pray, we recognize God's greatness. Second Chronicles 6.14 says, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. There's no one like him. No one as knowledgeable, no one as intelligent, no one as wise, no one as capable. When King Solomon was building the temple, he wrote this, the house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house? Since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him, who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him. You see, Solomon had a keen awareness of God's greatness. He knew that no matter how grand, how spectacular, how elaborate he built this temple, there was no way it was going to contain. No way it was going to match, to even be worthy of God's greatness. God is great. And we need to remember that in 2020. There's no greater person we can turn to. We pray because of God's greatness. We also pray because of God's sovereignty. Not only is he great, but he's in control, people. Friends, he's in control. We find ourselves so often in the grip of anxiety, don't we? I know I do, all the time. So entrapped with anxiety because things are spinning around sometimes feel like they're circling the drain. They're outside of our control. That never happens to God. Never happens. He's never anxious. It's something that's totally unique to him. There are, there are no heroes. There are no geniuses, no celebrities, no politicians, no presidents, no kings that escape anxiety. And that's because none of them has absolute sovereignty. None of them are in complete control. In fact, Proverbs 21.1 tells us the king's heart, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Did you catch that? He turns it. Even the king's heart, that most sacred space inside of him, which is the seat of his desires, his inner thoughts, that's not fully in his control. It's in God's control. So when you look around at the world and you see the evil that's out there, when you see dark hearts conjuring mischief, when you identify those people who look like true enemies of God, of all that's good. All they want to do is destroy you. 
know that their hearts are not their own. God's in control of them. So be constant in prayer. When you feel panicky, when you feel powerless, turn to the one who's absolutely sovereign. We pray because of who God is. We also pray because of who we are. Who are we? We're needy. We're frail. Even the strongest of us are weak. You don't have to look long to realize that human beings are fragile. The moment a baby is born, those parents know that if they don't take care of that thing, it's not going to make it. Have you watched any movies lately? Chances are the beautiful, powerful, intelligent, charismatic characters that you are watching on the screen are now old. They're struggling in some way, struggling with some type of ailment, struggling with some type of depression, some, some type of insecurity issues, or maybe, and in fact it's very likely, with a lot of Christmas movies we've seen, they're already dead and gone. Even the very best of us wither and die. We need to be in constant prayer because we're needy. In fact, we're not only needy, but whether we recognize it or not, we're totally dependent on God's goodness. There's not a thing about us that's not because of him. Remember from last week, James 1.16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Everything that we are, everything that we have, it's not our own doing. We didn't wish ourselves into existence. We didn't create this world with its beauty, with its complexity, with its resources that enable us to survive and enjoy so many good things. We didn't, we're not responsible for that. And if you've placed your trust in Jesus, well, you know that it's not because you were good enough that you have a relationship with God. No. Everything you have is from God. He's the one responsible. Not only that, every molecule in your body, the, the, the fibers, the sinews, the cells, the, the atoms with those tiny little protons, neutrons, and electrons, they stick together because of God. That's what Colossians 1.16 tells us. By him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, which is important to recognize. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You and I are completely dependent on God's goodness. So if he's the source of all things, if he's absolutely in control of everything, and if we're needy and we're totally dependent on him, upon his goodness for our existence, then doesn't it just make sense that we'd constantly be coming to him in prayer? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. My friends, 2019, it's in the rear view mirror, but before us lies another journey. Are we ready for it? 
As you and I step forward into the unknown, into the uncertain, perhaps the intimidating, the scary, the anxiety-inducing days ahead, let's rejoice in hope. Let's be patient in tribulation. Let's be constant in prayer. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds our future. We know that if our trust is in Christ, our future in him is secure It's not here yet, but we can be filled with joyful expectation as each breath brings us closer to the day when we'll see him face to face. Until then, let's keep our eyes fixed on him because we're weak and he's strong, because he's in control and we're not, because every good and perfect gift comes from him who flung those stars into the night sky. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Let's pray.